Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial Hello everyone, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money. Well, we heard from you guys. I mean, we kind of always hear from you guys, but this time we asked to hear from you guys about your changing relationship with money during COVID-19. Obviously, we always get a lot of feedback on our episodes. Um, We have an email address, GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com, which you guys write into, leave comments, all of that. Uh, although specifically in the last couple of weeks, I asked you guys to write about what's going on with you. Send us an audio message or a short email about how your relationship to money has changed during this mind-blowing, tragic time. Uh, obviously, it's on the forefront of everyone's minds. How are you going to make money? What's going on with work from home? What's going on with unemployment? What medical bills are going to look like during this time? All kinds of stuff. You can't get away from it. It's it's in the news constantly. So we thought we would get individual listener stories and have you guys tell us what you're going through. And then since I'm only like, I would say, 25% of an expert, I brought on financial therapist Amanda Clayman to help me give you guys advice, talk to you about your specific situations, uh, brought in the questions out to talk about how this particular issue is affecting Many, many, many people. Uh, and also therapized. Get a little therapized. Anytime I can get you guys therapy for free, I will do it. And that's the Gabby Dunn guarantee. So here is our interview with uh, Amanda Clayman, who is the host of Financial Therapy with Amanda Clayman, which is through the Death, Sex, and Money podcast feed. You should go check that out. And Amanda and I are going to answer some questions and give you guys advice and mostly it will be Amanda, who's a professional, and me, a person who somehow has this show. <laughs> so uh, can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yes, absolutely. My name is Amanda Clayman. I am a financial therapist. 
What is a financial therapist? A financial therapist is somebody who who helps people bring money into balance by looking at the emotional and the cognitive and behavioral and even relational aspects um, that go into our financial well-being. And you're the host of Financial Therapy with Amanda Clayman from WNYC Studios, Death, Sex, and Money. Right. Um, which we have had uh, Anna Sale on this show before. And we've also had other financial therapists on the show before. And I think people don't consider that a lot of issues may stem from or relate to money. So what what sort of things do you see as a financial therapist? What are the common things people come in for? People usually come to me sort of via two different channels. Um, either there is some sort of like inflection point in their life. So maybe something big around partnering or having a child, um, switching careers. So the things that were working for them, um, like strategies, like go-to kind of habits and routines with money, uh, are no longer working in these new set of circumstances. And the other sort of pathway through which people come to me is if there has been something in their life that has been not working to some degree for a really long time, and all of a sudden that that not working has gotten intolerable or they've kind of run out of uh they've run out of time and runway to fix it. Yeah. So obviously you're talking about like big things changing and causing changes to our relationships to money which everyone is experiencing right now because of COVID-19. But before any of that, like how complicated are our relationships with our money just in normal times? That's a funny question to to answer. Because when you say something is complicated, there's almost like a um, a little bit of an undertone that 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 complication or the complicated relationship mm-hmm. is is not a good thing. Like it's something that we have right. to work on and fix. And I actually take the view that money is a an interesting and super useful lens for us to just be able to look at our lives um, because we first of all money touches basically everything everything that we do, like how we work and how we identify with our work, how we support our ourselves um, or our families, like the status we have in the world, the ways that we spend money to take care of ourselves, like literally life maps onto money in some, some mm-hmm. pretty uh, fundamental and ubiquitous ways. And at the same time, at the same time, we we project a tremendous amount of meaning onto money as well. So I find money super useful as a as a therapist to be able to like help help people drop in to the choices that they're making um and see what parts of themselves get revealed through those choices that might otherwise have been very difficult for them to see and also to be able to work with money in some interesting ways so that that they can experience like internal changes or even internal transformations. Yeah, I agree about the word complicated. We've talked about on the show many times that our relationship to money is is like a dovetailing sort of snowballing, like it's how we feel about ourselves. And then for me specifically, I've talked about in my book, having bipolar two and how mania causes you to spend and then how depression causes you to spend and how you feel, uh, about your own money situation, like indicate, like indicates what you're going to do. So like for me, when I, when I didn't want to look at it and didn't know anything about it, I would just ignore everything that had to do with money. And then that caused more problems and more problems and more problems. Um, and so a lot of people who were, I think before the pandemic feeling very good about their money situations, at least from what we heard from our listeners, um, they either have maintained that and feel guilty or they've completely lost that and are just totally lost. Um, so I did I did ask uh, our listeners for some of what's going on with them uh, during this time. And so we're going to hear some of their real experiences. And then I, I would love to talk about those with you. Great. Because you're a it. professional therapist and I'm just a, a person. So, <laughs> so um, this is an email that we got from a listener named Daniel. And he said, 
Hi, Gabby. I'm 33, Caucasian, born male, and identify as a heterosexual male in an upper middle class household, 6'2", and easily control my weight. Wow, this is a dating profile. He didn't say that. <laughs> I just I just was like, do you, do you fish and enjoy the outdoors? Anyway, okay. <laughs> Essentially, I was born into a body and an environment that bestowed me with enormous privilege and plentiful resources, and I almost fucked it all up. My 20s were marked by addiction, heartbreak, confusion, and a desperate desire to connect with others to the extent that I often found myself in toxic and mesh relationships. Who among us? I added that. I justified the pain and depersonalization that I experienced by creating a narrative that was all leading to greatness, that I would write songs that would emotionally connect with other people and make my living as a musician. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing. It's not embarrassing, Daniel, at all. My path towards recovery is part of my own perception, self-perception now. At 27, I stumbled into a very lucrative career path as a result of luck and my own status as a fit 6'2", cisgender male. I started a five-year union apprenticeship as an HVACR mechanic. So now he's sober. He's been sober since March 1st, 2017. Congratulations. Um, in my mind, I believe we are all born equal into unequal circumstances. And I'm grateful for my recovery process, but I also feel a certain amount of shame for my position in the world. Because of this, I must be a superhuman. I must fix everything, build anything, play any instrument, must be an attentive and supportive partner to my wonderful girlfriend of three years. I must be an HVAC technician with immense knowledge, skill, and work ethic while also being empathic and understanding towards those around me. I also must never turn down an opportunity for overtime because if I was to do that, I fear I would be cast as unworthy of employment. Then COVID-19 came. So this is a person that's always wants to be productive is we're cutting down a little bit of it, but I've always insisted I pay the vast majority of the mortgage and bills as I make about four times of what my partner does, but I've come to depend on their income more and more as I haven't been able to work for the past four weeks. And then a week ago, some people uh, robbed him and took a bunch of tools from his work truck, like $3,000 worth of tools. And uh, he's freaking out. I slowly came to the realization realization of just how little control I have and how much I'd been fooling myself, pushing myself to the breaking point and ignoring my emotions so I can handle what's right in front of me because I don't feel like I have a right to fail. And then um, he's been crying a lot since uh, since his tools were stolen. Mm. So this is to me a person who, and I think a lot of people um, deal with this and me too, is that you put all of your self-worth into how much money you're able to make and how productive you can be. And then during a pandemic, you're not able to be that productive and you realize a lot of stuff is out of your control and you totally break down. So what would you say to someone like this? Gosh, it's it's interesting because for me, Daniel's story really started in, in the dating profile part when he was introducing mm-hmm. sort of the 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 basic stats of his life. It was a very like how an external person would would perceive and value him. And what we heard him saying is that he didn't value these things really in himself. He was mm-hmm. they seemed to come with a lot of obligations. Like everything should come easy for me. I should be able to do this this and this because I I I have all of this um enormous privilege. And mm-hmm. underneath that there was a piece that really spoke out in terms of like what he felt he deserved out of all of that. Like mm-hmm. it, I forget the the actual like language that he used there but but I literally wrote down like what do we deserve because mm-hmm. he he didn't seem to feel like any of it was really his and he didn't know who he was and all of that. And and now he's got this whole journey around sobriety and and being vulnerable and um being lovable and having value and worth even when we're not perfect and not in control and and suddenly this this sort of like victimization happens right he's mm-hmm. the victim of of theft and how is he supposed to take care of himself and and talk about like the other side of a coin right on the one hand is here are all of these things that came to you that you didn't deserve necessarily. You did nothing to to right. earn them. It's just sort of like the luck of privilege. And now on the other side, something that you you have earned and worked for has been taken from you unfairly. Mm-hmm. And and how do we how do we reconcile a world where both of those things can be true? And what do we sort of make of all of that in terms of how we want to understand the world that we're in and our own sense of limited control, whether that's a good thing in the in 
the sense of inherit of privilege that we inherit or a bad thing that we mm-hmm. can be the victims of bad things happening to us. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think the part of your question was, like, what would I say to somebody like Daniel? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would... I would really want to bring Daniel down to the level of what he's feeling um, because we see Daniel telling a lot of stories here about who he is um, and about how he sees himself in the world that he lives in. And right. and that's also something that, that I think happens with a lot of people um, who have an experience with addiction is that they have, we have, because I'm also a sober person in recovery, um, a lot of difficulty sometimes being able to to stay grounded and in touch with our own feelings. It's easier in some ways to sort of escape to a more analytical storytelling kind of a, a filter on our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the pieces that that Daniel's missing is just like, how do we how do we bear the the guilt, which is what I think he's saying in the first part of his introduction, like the guilt of things that we don't deserve, and then the sadness mm-hmm. that we feel when we think we're doing the right things and something doesn't go the way that we feel like we have earned it. Right. Be- because there is no, like, there's no answer to that, right? There's no right. advice that I could could prescribe for him. Um right. I and I think in fact the healthier thing for him to be able to like if we're talking about using money as a lens to kind of live your life like this is something that's a thing that's happening deeply within Daniel's feelings and his identity that's showing up as a a problem with money. And money yeah. money often is what points us toward places in our lives where we need to to grow. And change. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's happening here. Yeah, I relate to this a lot because I think it's a lot of ca- catastrophic thinking in the sense that like whatever you've gotten uh, to bring you to a certain place, you don't deserve it. And uh, like you you feel like, OK, then I have to work extra hard to deserve it. And then something that is just as out of your control, which is like getting robbed, is also somehow your fault. Like, oh, the ways in which I could make something my fault from any direction is truly a gift and an art. Um, And so I felt that with him where it was like, you know, so then having like uh, any money that I have or any money that I've like been good with is some sort of trick and I've fooled everyone and I don't deserve it. And any money that I've uh, like lost, I did that. I'm an idiot. Um, and so I think it's a way of having control. And during this time, during COVID, you're being forced to confront what you actually have control over. Because a lot of times we can just like pretend, you know, or like go into our jobs or be like, well, I have control over how much I work. And then like you don't. Um, and so I think loss of control is really fucking with people. And then again, the loss of control of getting of getting robbed, too, is like right. a double whammy. It's like the universe is trying really hard to send him this message. Really hard. The Yeah, which is like an unfortunate mode of delivery. But like, yeah, to be like, it is, you are not in control of everything. It is mm-hmm. not all on you. You have a partner. You have, you have, you're in recovery for addiction, which is a disease you did not ask for. Like, there's other things that are in charge, I promise. Um, and you don't have to be the savior of everybody. Yes. And and that's such a good that's such a good point too that that sometimes when we're looking for solutions we we want to look just inside of ourselves and sometimes the solution is actually what we need to um do differently in our lives especially as it relates to like um not always thinking that we have to be 100% in control of an outcome. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that actually needs to happen is that we admit our vulnerability to another person mm-hmm. um, and and receive their help and support. Um, especially mm-hmm. with what he was saying, you know, the the sort of like the, the scent of self-worth issues. Like I mm-hmm. wonder how much Daniel was really allowed to need things 
and feel things right. and ask for things. Um, right. Or if he was just told that he should be grateful all the time for all yeah. of the privileges he enjoyed. Right. Grateful or or uh, have this position of being in control and in charge. And like, again, like being like a 6'2 man does not mean you're in control of everything, I promise. Right. right. And also, like, you know, he ends by saying that he's cried so much about about the stuff getting stolen, which, like, absolutely. But a lot of times when when money stuff had happened that was out of my control, I would be crying. But I would also be crying about, like, years of things that, like, have nothing to do with that. It just opens, like, a well. And so I think, like, think about why you're crying, but then write down, like, other reasons you might be crying. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it's usually like opens a door that was like already blocked and like needed to be opened. Yes. I mean, there is there is a way, like you heard me say earlier, that that money often points us toward ways that we need to grow. Like especially yep. if there are, are kind of like, like I, I sometimes will describe it as like a lens through which we see the world. Mm-hmm. And, and if we have a lens that's kind of – it's not working so well for us. We're we're either like seeing things this way, it leaves us exposed to more risk or is is actively damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, rest assured, this is going to show up in some way in your money. So like to your point about see what else is happening, like why else you're crying when that's coming up, like we can ask ourselves what is the lesson that I think I need to learn here, which is sometimes like our 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 quiet inner voice speaking up yeah. or sometimes it puts a name on the pathology or the thing that is is um mm-hmm. actively harming us that needs to be tested against the reality of our lives in order for us to work on it. Yeah, and loss of control is a big one, so big one. I feel you. Um okay, we have a voicemail from a listener named Tiffany who is uh, a black queer woman whose partner is pregnant or she and her partner are pregnant. I don't know who's pregnant. Somebody's pregnant. Let's listen to it. Hello. Uh, My name's Tiffany. I brought my partner, Rissa, with me on this one. Hey. Because I am admittedly a little intimidated (laughs) about it. So we were actually living in Detroit when the pandemic first hit. We were planning to move to Washington, D.C., where we are right now. But we... We're not planning to move quite as quickly as we did, but when the pandemic hit, we said, let's just go on ahead and and move up our timeline and get out there. We had to have quite a bit of money to be able to put down, like a deposit. uh, The rent here is three times as much as our rent in Detroit was because, you know, East Coast versus Midwest. And since then, I have lost six people in Detroit one of which being my cousin who is 33 or was 33. Uh, And um, it's jarringly clear to me that we did make the right decision to leave uh, Detroit during this time because it, it was such a hot zone and D.C. isn't. But also the resources and infrastructure there are just not quite as strong as it is in D.C. And so a lot of people just weren't able to protect themselves, namely some of the people in in my circle. And again, all of these people are Black. And it's just devastating because I know no one in D.C. But in Detroit, I know six people in the course of three weeks. Um, so... I will say that I've I've not really had as I don't know how much more glaring of a example of how money seems to have saved me and my baby's life than that. I I strongly believe that it would have been difficult for us to not contract COVID-19 otherwise. Um but I don't know that for sure. I do know that I'm glad that I will never have to find that out. Um, we, I will say also uh, a, maybe even a more clear example of, of money protecting us is 
we literally order all of our groceries through either Instacart or Amazon Prime right now. <laughs> Which we were not able to do in Detroit. No. At all. No, no. Uh, it, was, it was just really hard because of where we lived, the neighborhood we lived in, but also just a series of infrastructure-oriented issues there that just are not in existence here. The city, D- D.C. is just smaller. Like, I, I mean, there's just no... There's so many things that that are different here. But um, so that was really helpful because, you know, we don't want to get sick. And we it's it's very clear that that's something that could happen. So I want to talk to you, Amanda, about something that I picked up on here, which is like survivor's guilt in terms of having more money than the people around you. And what do you say to people like that that come to you and are sort of like, I've moved up in economic class or I'm able to afford things that people in my family and the people that I grew up around can't. And I feel like a survivor's guilt about it. There's survivor's guilt. And then there is also survivor's isolation in this point, like in this um, in this story as well. Like, okay, there's. What I hear Tiffany doing, Tiffany and Rissa, is is redefining sort of like who's who's in their pod, right? Like like Mm -hmm. being connected to your your community, um, and and your loved ones, but being very worried about how dangerous it is for you, literally, um, to to be a member of that community and and be in that environment. And and choosing something like choosing safety for you and your partner and and your baby that's on the way mm-hmm. um, that feels safer. But on the other hand, you know, because your your imperative, your primary imperative is obviously for like one's own life. We we want to live, um, and we want to protect a child. Um, but when we f- that makes us feel really alone. Mm-hmm. On top of how guilty we feel is a whole other sort of swirling and shifting sense of identity. And and I hear Tiffany saying, like, she wanted to go into a whole description of, like, why Amazon Fresh works in D.C. but doesn't work in, in Detroit. Like, like we want to be yeah. in that sort of, like... Um, it, how we make sense of, like, the the structural and institutional barriers to wellness and health and safety and opportunity and all of that. Absolutely. Um because it's it's so painful to have to yeah. make those kinds of choices between how to protect yourself and your your um family unit but feeling like that really cuts you off from a community and a family back in Detroit that's so important and feels like such a loss. Yeah, I mean, it's also uh, never been clearer um, the ways that the system is set up to particularly fail black people, which we've seen in terms of the numbers in New York, in terms of what neighborhoods are hit with the most death, uh, obviously in terms of the way that Detroit is hit harder. Right. You know, and I think like if you're a member of that community, it's almost like a, a widespread PTSD or like a widespread survivor's guilt, which I think it's a thing that people are really going to be dealing with for years after all of this resolves, quote unquote. Like, I think right. there's going to be a lot of psychological stuff going on. And we talked to someone in the first episode of this show about the psychological trauma that happens when you are a main, when you are a minority, a racial minority, and you move up in social or economic status, and what that ha- what happens to you when you when that happens, and um, the sort of uh, guilt and also like obligation you feel that uh, white people don't feel, and um, and so I think that's going to be even like tenfold uh, for people that are like, okay, well, what's my obligation to the larger community? Why me? Why am I able to do this? And other people who look like me are not able to do this. And that happens financially, like in on a regular, in a regular year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like what Tiffany and her partner are experiencing is like that times, you know, a thousand during this particular time when people are, are dying. Yeah. I, I think that there is, there's going to be a lot of reckoning um, I mean, there's going mm-hmm. to be a, a lot of fallout, and I think that we need to have a huge reckoning. Like, if this country knows what's mm-hmm. good for it, we will 
we will reckon with that honestly, um, about how risk is so unequally distributed in this country. Um, and and I think of the emotional labor and and the mm-hmm. sort of like like what it takes to be able to go out into a world and do your best, even though there is absolutely no guarantee and certainly a lot of evidence that that mm-hmm. effort and work that you put in is not going to be um, fairly rewarded right by the system and and sometimes we can make our our peace with that to a certain degree um sometimes we know that there are sacrifices but but we can be realistic about it but it's very different when when the stakes are so elevated right like they are now where where the the degree of life and death has come up yeah another level um right one of the things that tiffany said that struck me so deeply was, you know, I know six people in my community in Detroit and in my family who've passed away. And in D.C., I don't know one person yeah. who's going through what I'm going through. And so there's the isolation of of grief, too. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no way that that grief can come without anger because the yeah. root of anger is actually a, um, anger is very closely linked to injustice when something happens that we think right. is out of whack and and unfair. Um, mm-hmm. And it is so grossly unfair and that anger is is justified. And I think that we we as a society need to validate and hold the mm-hmm. where that anger is coming from. Okay, we need to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. And we're back. Um, okay, so this is from Noah, this voicemail. Hi, my name is Noah and I'm from Australia. And my experience is definitely one of the more positive and privileged experiences because I've ended up earning more money than usual because I've been getting JobKeeper government payments. So effectively, the government here is paying um, employee wages for businesses that can't afford to pay their own employees. After taxes, I'm earning $850 American um, instead of my usual $200 a fortnight. So that is a huge difference, and it's definitely weird to see money in the bank. That I'm not used to that. Um, so, yeah, they were meant to be for six months, but they're reviewing it again at the end of the month now. So I don't know how long that's going to last for. Um, but it is weird getting government payments because I feel like I'm getting money that I haven't earned because I'm working, but I'm earning more money than I would for doing the same amount of work so that's kind of strange but it also feels like I can't spend the money and at the same time like I can because I didn't like earn it so it kind of feels like free money but it's not like I did work for it so that's kind of strange um I mean I think a lot of fees that people normally have that they're not paying like going to the hairdresser or getting their nails done like I didn't really have anyways I don't really go to get my nails done Um, but I do think that money spending is a constant that people know because it's something that we have to do all the time. And now that everything else that we're used to doing is so uncertain, spending money is a way to be in control of the situation because we are used to buying stuff to make us feel better. I ordered some clothes. Um, that was an unnecessary purchase that I did to just like motivate myself. Um, because, uh, online uni has been really busy way busier than normal so I just told myself that if I got through my um, assessments that I had that for that week that it was that I would order myself these clothes um so that has definitely been a way to feel um more motivated and just um I don't know necessarily more in control um but definitely it has been really hard to focus on stuff um so yeah, I also ordered a weighted blanket um, to help with anxiety. I think it's like it's been hard to have um, to just stay calm in this in all of this. Um, like I am very introverted, but still being at home and um, being so busy with work and with university, it's been um, I've been like way more anxious than usual. So um, yeah, that's kind of um, my situation right now. So. Um... What stood out to you uh, from there? 
a lot of it uh, was the buying stuff to feel safe. But what what stood out uh, from that to you? And also not feeling like you deserve money from your government, which you absolutely do. But yeah. You say your part first. So, <laughs> um, so how how um, it's it's like I I picture Noah trying to put like the pieces of a puzzle together and just sort of randomly grabbing two pieces and seeing if they fit. Like there there doesn't seem to be any order of all of the different things that she's experiencing and she's lifting. And I think a lot of us mm-hmm. are feeling that way right now. Um, so what are some of the things we heard? We heard like what it's like to make more money and have more money, what it's like not to earn that money, but to receive that money. Mm-hmm. Um what are the things that people are – she didn't say this exactly, but I was wondering how she felt about it. Like, you know, not going out and getting, like, your hair cut and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she wasn't doing those things anyway, but we're receiving a lot of messages right now, too, about our individual responsibility as consumers for supporting small business. Um, uh-huh, yeah. So some of us do feel like an obligation to – be agents in the economy in a particular way right now. So like what I I heard from Noah is like just this sense of like she doesn't know who she is because it sounds like everything in her experience and in her environment mm-hmm. um, has shifted so radically. And yeah, it was so curious to me that like buying clothes is an attempt to feel more motivated. And I yeah. she wasn't saying what she needed to be motivated toward um but i i do wonder I mean, to me just like getting up in the morning <laughs> truly but the clothing piece of it is often like like we put on clothes like we put on a costume for our uh-huh. to perform our identities so like mm-hmm. there there could be a, a part of her that's like i am this person who who looks or feels like this and this is a way for me to feel a little bit more grounded in myself. Like if I were giving advice to Noah, I would actually, and, and, you know, through the lens of money, um, Mm -hmm. to, to not be in sort of a, a, a passive position or an undirected position relative to the choices that she has in front of her, um, Mm -hmm. with the money that's, that she's receiving. So to, Literally, like, like, what do I want to do with this eight hundred and fifty dollars American, the equivalent of it? Um, like, how much of that do I want to save? How much of it do I want to put toward X, Y, Z? That could could help her feel like she is creating and constructing that identity in a new set of circumstances, rather than it's just coming to her. Right, there's no plan. And and not only that, but it it's coming to her and she almost doesn't recognize it. Like she doesn't know who to yeah. be with with mm-hmm. all of these differences. So so yeah. we can say like and this is what I love about being a financial therapist, because we can work on on the like the meaning side or we can work on the tool side of money. So I would give her a sort of tool side, like a a, a concrete task that mm-hmm. I think would help her feel more it would have a, a psychological and emotional effect. Mm-hmm. I I also just want to say, Noah, like the government should give you all their money. Like there's no, <laughs> there's this false idea that people have where they go, but I didn't earn it. You earned it by being alive. Trust me. Like you've earned it. Like it also the I, capitalist idea of needing to have earned money is like we money's made up. And like, if the government is giving out money, you take their money. And this is the type of thing where pe- it stops people from applying for unemployment in the U.S. because they go, well, I-, I should pull myself up by my bootstraps. I shouldn't take help from the government. What do you think the government is here for? Take all their money. Take all of it. Anyway, um, that's that's my socialist rant of the episode. Um, okay, cool. Uh, let's do the, the last voicemail. Hello. So a little bit of context. Before COVID, I was on a grant program, so I was living abroad in the Netherlands, uh, and I was doing research through a grant that was funded by the U.S. government. And before COVID also, I was 
because I was living in Europe, I was very much looking forward to spending my whole summer really traveling across Europe. I was planning to go to Croatia, um, to Germany, to Greece, to Spain. I was really going to try to do it all. Um, so that was really where I was trying to bank most of my savings and money before all of this. So then COVID happens, my grant is kind of suspended. So we were all told we need to come back home. I ended up leaving within four days. I had my entire little apartment packed up. I had my flight bought. So I got back and I have no income now. So I was supposed to be on this grant until September. And because it's a grant, I'm not able to apply for unemployment either, which is also very frustrating because if I had unemployment, I felt I feel like my I would feel less worried about my financial situation, mainly because, um, you know, I would I would have some income coming in. Luckily, I was able to move back home once I came back. So I don't really have many expenses either. So whereas before I would spend most of my money on, you know, like rent and food and stuff, a lot of my food is being taken care of now. Um, I am paying a little bit in rent, but, you know, not nearly as much as I would be if I was still in the Netherlands. So in a way, I feel a little more in control about my financial situation because I know that I have the support that I need. Um, and I will have that for the foreseeable future until I'm able to find a job. But also in another way, I feel less in control because before I would spend most of my time thinking about what's the next thing I want to do, like where's the next place I want to go or the next experience I want to have. And now it feels like I'm spending all my time thinking about like, how can I find a job? What's this job going to be? Is it going to be something I like? Is the income going to be worth me doing something that's maybe not in my field? Um, I think having those worries is one, something I was not even think like it wasn't even on the table before. And two, it just, it feels a lot more, you know, I'm competing with jobs with 33 million people who have just been laid off. Um, and that does make me feel a little nervous about my financial future. When I look forward to what like three months from now is going to look like or four months from now, if I don't have some stable income, that's going to start to get really difficult. Um, so yeah, I think that's where I'm kind of at right now. And thank you so much for sharing stories like my own and I'm so excited to hear the episode and hear what other people are going through and what their experiences are like. Thanks, Cheyenne, who has the same name as my little sister. So that that bumped you right to the top of listenership. Just kidding. <laughs> I, I picked your email because it was good on its own, I promise. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what the the high rates of unemployment and competing with more people um, for jobs stuck out to me. What stuck mm -hmm. up to what stuck out to you? What stuck out to me is Cheyenne is is asking like like at what level should I be panicked here? Like, right. like trying <laughs> to sort of go right right. There's, there's this bullet point. There's this bullet point. Like I'm okay for three months or three or four months. Um, that's good. I'm here with my family. That's good. Um. But, like, what happens to me after this initial period of safety? Right. And and right. how have all the ways that I I planned before in my life – like, one of the, the things that I wonder, too, how, like, how related they are is um, what's the association mm -hmm. that she has with planning? Like, she sounds like a person who has – when she has planned in the past, what she said is like, I was planning to go to Croatia. I was planning to save this money for travel. I was doing all these things. And so now when she's thinking about like, I'm in a situation where something pretty dire could be four months in the future. How can I make a plan for that? A, it's really tough to make a plan. Um, and B, what's coming up for her when she does sort of like turn on that planning switch is all of these associations uh, with loss. And the plans that right. have been lost before. And and that's something that I'm hearing a lot Relatable. from people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like when we went quick aside, like one of the things that can help us save money for purpose is like when we when we give it a name. So it's not just like this is my savings. It's like this is my vacation fund. And we associate it with a vacation and we're excited and we we align our behavior with it. We follow through. Um, right, right. The, the downside of that is then that becomes much more tangible 
for us when something happens to that. It's not just, whoop, that was money. It's like that was literally this thing, which I I had already bonded with. Um, right. So I th- like psychologically and emotionally, I, I feel like what Cheyenne is, what's in front of her, like the work to do is to is to mourn some of the things that were her plans, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. were so Im- important and vital and gave her life a lot of um, joy and structure. And to mm-hmm. now be like, I don't want to like I what I hear is like, I don't want to work on these plans. I want to be in the Netherlands. I don't want to be in my parents' house figuring out like how to compete with 30 million people to get a job. Right. I want to go back. That and wasn't be, the plan. That wasn't the plan. <laughs> and the plan is taken away from you, even if you did so well. So like saving up a bunch of money for a house and then being like this in the fall, I'm going right. to buy a house and then being like, no, I'm not. Right. And now you have all this money that you did, quote unquote, the right thing. What do you do? You know, I think you adjust, you, you just mourn the old plan and you use the money for a new plan. Yes. But that's a process. If, even when we get that logically, yes. like we want to skip over the part hurts. where that hurts and that sucks. Yeah. Um. But in order to be free of that and not carry it forward with us, in order, it's like sometimes it's so painful, the lesson that we'll tell ourselves that we need to learn. Um rather mm-hmm. than feel it, is plans are stupid. You know what? It's better just to be hands-off because when you care about something enough to really work toward it, it can still get taken away from you. So why care and why try? Right. Yes, And I don't absolutely. prescribe that. I'm not, I'm just saying like, like that's one of the things that when we when we don't do the feeling work, sometimes there are very big unintended consequences of doing that. Yes. And and you know what? Save the money. Then if, if you don't want to use it for something different or you don't want to divert it or you don't want to, you don't need, now you're like, well, I don't need it for this other thing. Just hold on to it and, and your plan right. will take a year longer, two years longer. And like that sucks totally. And also... Like I'm, I'm have both. Like I have money that I was putting away for something that like is not gonna happen. I'll just hold on to it. And there's also money that I was gonna use for certain things that are now need to be used for other things. Need to be donated. Need to be given to family members. Need to. It has a new purpose. Right. Um. But you do. You are allowed to feel. You are. It's grief. Everyone is feeling grief either for the delay of a plan or the cancellation of a plan. You know, and money that you, quote unquote, again, did the right thing, saved. But then now the right thing doesn't matter. The <laughs> right it did thing, matter. Okay. It does. Yes. It does. Right now, the yeah. right thing is is a kick in the ass um, in that, like, that's mm-hmm. all of the, the things that we, all the effort that we put into doing things that didn't feel good in the moment or as good as something mm-hmm. else could have felt in the moment. Um mm-hmm. Uh, all of that sort of deferred energy is what is coming up and needs to be processed right now. Um, yes. All the planners that I'm talking to, those are the people who are experiencing the most grief in this moment. All right, it's time to take one last break and we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm just going to do one. uh, We're going to do one more uh, listener email from someone named Blanca. um, And I'm going to cut it down a little bit. But basically, um, uh, this is a person who has started getting their shit together, has always uh, been from like a multi-generational bad with money family. um, And so they... Uh, got a yearly bonus, a raise, finished paying off their car. They were building a 401k, all this stuff. They left a bad marriage last summer. We love that here. Um, and then basically this, the state goes into lockdown for COVID and they have, um, they ha- they're, they're, we're, it's working out okay for them, but they're having a crisis of conscience uh, about if continuing with their financial plan, continuing with building their 401k, continuing with paying stuff off is actually ethical or moral during this time because it feels like profiting over the economic suffering of others from this deadly illness, even if it's not directly, but she still kind of feels like it is. There's donations, supporting local businesses, helping people close to them, all all this kind of stuff that they're able to do. Um, 
but uh, for some people, the work from home situation is actually having a positive effect and allowing her to make more money. And she's been told, you know, being financially responsible is is saving, is having all this stuff to, to keep yourself safe. But is this now, she feels, is this now just like greedy? So that is the email from Blanca. And I found that very interesting. Um, do you want me to go first? Do you go first? Yeah. Like, do you, let's say you're, you're like her and you've started doing all this stuff. Is it, is it ethical to like continue doing your, your plan? Or are you kind of just, again, blaming yourself for failures of the government, which happens a lot here on the show? (laughs) Um, this, this is, can we come back to actually blaming the government for failures as a topic at when we're done with this email? No, we lo- we absolutely love that here on this show. Okay. I also think, I also, my investments are down, which, you know, say la vu, that's how investments go. We're I do want to talk about that more. Um, but I, I yeah. want to talk about Blanca too. So, so in general, like mm-hmm. whenever somebody asks me a question, like, is it ethical to continue saving money? Um, or should it be used for X, Y, Z? Like that is a place where where we're over, we're we're deeply over on the meaning side and not mm-hmm. on the concrete side of what's happening. Oh, in, say in more. Individual financial life. Like um it it's being presented like it's a binary choice. Like we're trying to put these things into categories and we don't necessarily uh-huh. need to to make it one or the other. Um money, right. because we can sort of like we can split it up. We can look at it. We can sort of be more concrete with it. We we don't have to. We don't have to say something is all good or all bad. Um, mm-hmm. So for Blanca, I feel like what she's the the sort of like overall structure of the question that she's asking is like. Um, are the choices that I was making before in terms of like the values that I had and the plans that I had, are are those choices still relevant in the same way? And does that translate into the same amounts in terms of how what I want to do with my money? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And so it doesn't uh, because, have to, because the circumstances have changed. Those exactly. The circumstances have changed. So so she can I, I get this question, like another version of this question that I see a lot is around helping family members. And like, am I a bad yeah. person if I have my own financial goals while someone else is suffering um, in mm-hmm. my family? Um, and then they go into like, but this person was irresponsible and all the other things that we do to sort of like judge and jury that. Um, whereas when we when we are grounded in our own agency, with money, then we are able to hold those values in a more nuanced way. So we can say like, these are my values. It's important to me to like have a life that looks like X, Y, Z. It's important to me to support local businesses. It's important to me to be available and stable enough to help family members, et cetera. And those values translate to this many dollars for this and this many dollars for this and this many dollars for this. Mm -hmm. So these things are... Right now, we're seeing them as in competition with each other, and the goal should actually be how do we integrate them together. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting is that it is always the Blancas of the world who ask this question and never the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Pretty interesting that it's like, is it ethical for me to keep making money, says the person who makes $30,000 a year. Uh, and then the person who's about to become a trillionaire is like, no, let's keep going with this. Would love to keep being a trillionaire. Like, it's yeah. no, I think there's a lot of, especially at this time, I think in terms of money, there's a lot of personal responsibility nitpicking that I'm seeing among people uh, when, like, you don't, you giving away all your money is not going to help anyone. You're not Jeff Bezos. <laughs> like, you're not president of the United States. Like, you can absolutely help and, like, give and donate and, like, help people in, like, 100%. But there's the level of guilt that you're feeling is as if you are a trillionaire and you're not. And the trillionaire is feeling zero guilt. And I hate it. And we have to be careful, too, about putting putting a face there. Like, it doesn't matter if it's Jeff Bezos or... Jennifer Schmo, like, like it's not yeah. about the the individual human who occupies that position, and how virtuous or not they are. The fact that we have a, a structure that can 
put someone in that position. And what happens that- when any human is in that position, that I think is is an important question for us to ask. Like, like I do feel like um, it's I, – I can be so subjective about a lot of things, but I, I do feel no, like – just like why is – yeah. Like trillionaires, okay. like a system that that can result in trillionaires, that's not a system that is going to be like one of the trade-offs of that system. What it's not going to be able to do well is to take care of a, a wider variety of people. Absolutely. It, it It's the result of um, tax breaks and business structures that are exploitative and um, yeah, I mean, it's a huge result of a lot of things. And then it breaks my heart to see like young people who really care, who feel terribly guilty that they have like an extra $5,000 and they're like, I got to get rid of this, which like does help, but also like, oh, like why, like, why is the government not doing this? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's hard to move a big system. Like we're always a little, we're always solving the problem that came to the generation before us. Like, I see that very much in terms of, like, our psychological needs. Mm -hmm. Like, the way that I'm parenting my children is very often an expression of what I wish I had gotten more of or less of when I was a child. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. even when we're developing a system, like, this, the economic systems that America was built on are often, like, they were fighting against something before. And so we just are, we don't adapt instantly. Um, right. And it's one of our our great uh, vulnerabilities as people is, is our difficulty adapting when we need to. I mean, we see it with like yeah. climate change and all over the place. Yep. But let's um, not so be downers. Question. Let's not oh. be downers. <laughs> No, we love to be a downer here on Bad With Money. Um, We're very pessimistic slash realistic here. Um, Okay, wait. So last question. Um, What are some other basic essential tips that you can give to listeners as they battle their struggles with with their relationship to money, you know, right now at this very heightened moment? I think that we – what I like to see people doing is – taking a different sort of like a a more collaborative and conversational role with their money instead Mm -hmm. of just trying Mm -hmm. to top down be like this is something I'm going to control um I think what we need to do is do a lot more taking in and listening so taking in and listening to how we're responding to like things that are happening with our money with our job prospects um, with our sense of like how the choices that we made before seem like they're still good choices or maybe not good choices moving forward. Um, because mm-hmm. I, I think what happens too often is that people, when they feel uncomfortable, and this is just sort of like it's it's a function of how how, how we experience stress and stress's mm-hmm. job of going, ooh, I'm going to make you feel bad. So you look at this and you deal with it so that I'll go away. Um Mm-hmm. So we we want to go, okay, what can I do to make this yucky feeling go away? Um, and instead, if we can learn to sort of like create a little bit more space, um, be more gentle with ourselves, be able to sit in, in some of these feelings that are coming up without it overwhelming us um, and without us feeling like, like, oh, my God, this feeling is going to kill me. Like, I, I don't want to be dramatic, mm-hmm. but I think like a lot of the Being fear— upset- with the feeling yeah. for having the feeling right. while also experiencing the feeling. Totally. Exactly. Um, oh, my God. Like, to just be able to to ride that wave um, instead of tightening up and tensing up and resisting mm-hmm. it, that is, that is the key to resilience in these mm-hmm. circumstances because they're changing so quickly. And the best way we can help ourselves to be adaptive, to feel grounded, to be – to preserve our own bandwidth to be able to Mm -hmm. deal with this situation as it evolves so quickly is to be able to sort of like to open up more space to feel and to balance our ability to to feel and perceive what is right and wrong for us and to really Mm -hmm. integrate that with our ability to analyze information and options and make good decisions absolutely and and 
be able to think long term when long term has never been uh, less certain ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind um, of I I don't I don't want to minimize the the obvious stressors um, mm-hmm. and difficulties of this that that exists, and I'm not negating that. I'm saying that's there, and for for so many of us, if not all of us, there is also an opportunity for a real reassessment and reframing here to make sure some of the choices that maybe had become just so automatic for us yeah are still choices that that we believe in and that we want to rechoose moving forward yeah and i hope a lot of that is directed towards our um play our, our complacency with uh capitalism our complacency with the healthcare system our complacency with the minimum wage um i hope that at least at least after all of this tragedy there is a refocusing on um the ways in which money has has played a role in this pandemic and um and how this the structural things that need to change i i do look i love a good uh being angry at individual people but i think structurally a lot of these problems are related to structure and even the um, lack of mental health resources and lack of ability to open up and talk about what's going on for for you, I think it is playing a role. You know, it's playing a role for Daniel. It's playing a role for um, almost everyone who who called in. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, thank you so much, uh, Amanda, for coming on the show. And where can people find you? You can find me uh, at amandaclayman.com. You can find me on Instagram at amandaclayman and Twitter at Amanda Clay. And the podcast is called? It's called Financial Therapy with Amanda Clayman. And you can find it in the Death, Sex, and Money feed. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I loved it. So obviously, everyone's world has been completely upended. And people's money situations are a part of that. So I think a lot of stuff that stood out for me in the emails and voice messages that you guys sent is that there's uncertainty, obviously. There's fear, there's guilt, and a lot of it is universal. Like, we're all kind of going through similar things. And if you're not, at least the people who listen to this show have a lot of empathy and a lot of desire to help. So I think, um, once again, we come to this season's theme of control and using money to buy control. Either that control that's being bought is your own safety or the control that's being bought is how can I help other people? What can I do to fix this by myself, me individually? Like we can do what we can do and we absolutely should be helping people and doing what I see people doing, which is like sending money or sending food to hospitals or all the kinds of activism stuff, buying local, everything. But when you put the whole pressure of the world on yourselves, which is what I hear a lot of you guys doing, saying like, this is all my fault. This is all my fault. We're we're not seeing whose fault it actually is. And when we again, this is like the whole point of the show Bad With Money. We take these things on as something we individually did, something negative about ourselves. Why aren't we more when like the answer is we've been failed (laughs) massively by the government, by those whose job it actually is to take care of this, by rich people. And I don't just mean like rich people. I mean like billionaires and trillionaires who are refusing to to even remotely take a hit to save um, entire countries and cities and the world, which they probably could afford to do and not even sweat. So you got to just drop the the self self-hatred, self-catastrophizing, all of it that I see almost all of you who wrote in and not just the people that we called out, but all all of you who wrote in are experiencing. You're a good person. And um, being a good person sometimes gives you undue, I don't want to say delusions, but like the idea that you must or you are responsible for fixing everything. And you can fix what you can fix, but you cannot fix everything. And you are not a bad person because you can't fix everything. And what you can do is get the people who can fix everything to try to do that. 
you with your $5 are not going to solve structural racism. But you can try to be heard by the people that can. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell all your friends about it. Make sure you're subscribed to our show on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns, and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and yeah, I'll probably see you next week. And look, I never said that this show was positive. Okay, guys? I never promised that. (laughs) Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.